And if I'm not mistaken, Bryce and Mark just recently celebrate their one-year anniversary. And so let's congratulate them on that. This morning, if you have your Bible, let's go to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. Uh, the last few weeks, we have been doing these biographical profiles of people in Scripture who were once walking with God, near to God, drawing near to God, and something happens to draw them away from the Lord. And through these different biographical studies, we have seen that there are different things that can draw us away. Today, we come to King Solomon and chapter 11. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 to see the story of his being drawn away. 1 Kings 11.1, 1, But King Solomon loved many strange women. Together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, You shall not go in unto them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, Thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded thee. I will surely rend the kingdom from thee and will give it to thy servant. Notwithstanding, in thy days I will not do it for David thy father's sake, but I will rend it out of the hand of thy son. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is our intention to draw near to you through your word, to study the life of a man who once walked faithfully with you but fell away in the last leg of the race. Father, I pray that today that this would serve as an admonition to us, a warning, Lord, that we would seek to finish well. Father, I pray and ask that you would help me to explain your word accurately, Lord, and may I not make any insinuation that you have not made in Scripture. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fill me and use me to deliver your message to your people today. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a sad epitaph written at the end of King Solomon's life. If you remember, Solomon started out strong with much promise, but he did not finish well. 
In fact, Solomon is a superlative example of somebody who had great trajectory. I mean, if we look at the beginning of Solomon's life and the trajectory that he was on, we would say, man, he has the greatest potential of anyone who has ever come to the throne of Israel. And yet, it ends with great tragedy crashing down in a wreck. You, you, you cannot find another king in the Bible who had more privilege and more potential than Solomon. I challenge you, read it, search the scriptures, look and see if there was anybody who had more privilege and more potential than Solomon. Think about it, he was born the son of a beloved king. David was the beloved king of Israel. He was celebrated. He had reigned for four decades and he had the heart of the people. He was heir to the Davidic dynasty, which had the blessings of Almighty God and the promises that accompanied it. He enters in at a time when the enemies of Israel have been subdued. David was a warrior king, and David was used of God to fight the enemies of Israel so that Solomon knows nothing of war in the first 30 years of his reign. The country has a high national morale if you will when he comes to the throne they are not in the depths of despair they are not in a recession they're not in a depression they are not invaded by others but life is good in Israel literally it is at its zenith as you look back and chart the uh, the progress the rise and fall of Israel uh, it has a strong and growing Economy. I, I am telling you, Solomon comes onto the throne with more privilege, more potential than any other king. In fact, in my study this week, I came across this assessment from the book, The Patriarchs and Prophets of Israel, and it said this about Solomon's ascendancy. Never monarch ascended the throne with greater advantages or knew better to secure and improve them. Think about it. Solomon is set up for success. He's set up for success. He was raised as the son of a king. That, that means he's had an insider's view of the monarchy since birth, right? Do you know how, what a, what a leg up that is when somebody is going into a field or into a job or into a career or a profession when that is the family profession? Now, sure, they've got to learn some things on their own. They need some training, but, but they've been around it all of their lives. Unlike his father, David, David was not the son of a king. He is figuring it out all on his own. But Solomon has had the advantage of sitting in the back seat and watching his father drive uh, the nation of Israel. He, he has the endorsement and the tutelage of the outgoing king who reigned for 40 years. Think about this in contrast. To our American system, we have a, a, a democratic republic, and so we get to elect our president every four years. And, and, and sometimes there is a vast difference between the administration that is going out and the administration that is coming in. Solomon is not facing that. You know how, how challenging that is in and of itself, not to digress into politics, but just think about that. You come into this divided nation. Solomon knows nothing about that. He comes in with the full endorsement of his father king 
who names him to be his successor and the tutelage of his father. And he comes in with this uh, opportunity and platform. He not only has all of those things going for him, but he has the divine anointing and aid of Almighty God. God has spoken of Solomon and to Solomon and has promised that he would aid Solomon if Solomon will lead the country in the way that God wants it to go. And he has a tender and humble heart that gets him unprecedented wisdom. When we first meet Solomon, Solomon is not puffed up. Solomon is humble. And he prays to God and says, God, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to be a king. I'm a child. I don't know how to go out. I don't know how to come in. His one prayer request to God was not for great riches, not to conquer his enemies, but that he might have wisdom to know how to rule God's people. And it got the heart of God. God, and God gave him wisdom in an unprecedented way. The Bible actually says he was the wisest man who ever lived. That is because of the anointing and the aid of God. And yet, in the end, Solomon tragically is drawn away from God. How does that happen? How does a guy with this launching pad and this trajectory and this beginning come crashing down so violently in the end? Well, allow me to give you a brief sketch of Solomon's life, of his rise and his fall before we get into the details. As you think about Solomon's age and life, Solomon is around age 20 when he comes to the throne of Israel. His father David is dying. Solomon is about 20 years old. He is coronated to be the king. The Bible tells us that Solomon reigned for 40 years and that he died at age 60. So he comes to the throne, age 20, reigns for 40 years, dies at age 60, and his son uh, follows him. It is estimated that Solomon was drawn away from the Lord around age 54, or 55. And so as we read this text here in 1 Kings chapter 11, and it talks about him being turned away and building these, uh, these places of worship for his wives, you would place that, you would chart that around mid-50s in Solomon's life. So what is being described in our text are the last five or six years of Solomon's wife. Now, not the thousand wives part. He's been accumulating them for a while. But the turning away has happened in the last five or six years of his life. A young life, by the way, right? I mean, it's not like he's 106 and he's feeble. He's in what I would say the prime of life. The older I get, I, I think that that's a young age, right? If you want to see the stark difference in Solomon's heart from the beginning of his reign to the end of his reign. Just compare his first sermon with his last sermon. Uh, I'll give you the references. We won't take time to look at them today. But in 2 Kings 6, Solomon preaches a sermon when he comes to the throne. And he talks about how that God is God and that he is pursuing God and how that God will bless and everything is centered around God. And Solomon's last sermon is the book of Ecclesiastes and it is 12 chapters of depression. I mean, literally. He's like, what's the purpose in life? Vexation, vanity under the sun. There's no benefit in accumulating knowledge. There's no benefit in accumulating wealth. We live a little while and then we die. I mean, it is depressing. And it is Solomon's last sermon 
And it just shows you the difference in Solomon's heart and his attitude from the beginning of his reign to the end of his reign. What a tragic story of a man who started off so well but ended so poorly. The old saying is true. It's not how you start. It is how you finish. And the lesson for us today from the life of Solomon is to avoid being drawn away and to finish strong. That's where we're going to put our focus today. How do I finish strong? I mean, starting well is good. Running well is better. But finishing well is the best. You see, Solomon's early successes and Solomon's early achievements are really overshadowed by his final failures in life. So let's take a look at what derailed Solomon and got him off track after years of being near to God. At first glance, it looks like he has Samson syndrome, doesn't it? It looks like he's got a weakness for women. But that is just one component of what caused Solomon's trouble. If we dig deeper into his life, we will find that being unequally yoked together was just one component of him being drawn away from God. You see, before there was ever a king that sat on the throne in Israel, God gave divine guidance for monarchs through uh, the, the, the writings and the law of Moses. And so I want you to hold your place in 1 Kings here and go back with me to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 17. As we take a look and we assess Solomon's life, we're not just being armchair monarchs and saying, well, I would have done it this way and Solomon should have done it that way. What we want to do is we want to go back and find the biblical precedent and see what did God say Solomon should do and did Solomon do that? And so God, in his providence, through his agent Moses, writes 400 years. Think about that. Four centuries before Israel will ever have a king, he gives some divine guidance in Deuteronomy 7 for the king when he comes on the throne in Israel. Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14. When thou art uh, come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are about me, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother, but he shall not multiply. Watch, here's what he's not to do. He shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord has said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And it shall be, when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. 
And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandments to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel." I would say that this is a clear-cut list of do's and don'ts for kings which Solomon would have had access to. And so God says, I'm going to lay it out for you very plainly. For the king that comes on the throne, don't do this, do this. And so that was written 400 years before Solomon comes along. The word, the law of Moses is preserved in the temple at Jerusalem. The instruction was for the king to take a copy of that and hand copy it and read it and familiarize himself with it and to live by it. But Solomon ignored God's instructions. He ignored God's instructions. Now, I am a world-class instruction ignorer. In fact, I was doing some light installation yesterday installing lights I'd never installed before, and I got the instructions out for one of them, but I didn't bother reading them. I just looked at the pictures, and I got it, mostly. Then I had to go back and read the fine print to figure out what I didn't get to get it to work. You know, we approach God's Word that way too often, don't we? I mean, we believe in God, we believe in His Word, we we know the gospel is the only way to explain how to be saved, but there's some instructions in there that we kind of ignore. And that's what happened to Solomon. Solomon's not a bad guy. Solomon didn't start off bad. Solomon starts off with a heart for the Lord, with intentions for God, but he obviously ignored God's instructions. In fact, I can show you scriptural evidence that Solomon did everything he wasn't supposed to do, but I can find no scriptural evidence that he did the things he was supposed to do. And so what I'd like to do for you this morning is just show you the scriptural evidence. We are judging Solomon but we want to judge him by God's word. And so we're going to look at what God said, and we're going to look at what Solomon did. And this, my friends, is precisely what drew Solomon away from God. It was the fact that he didn't follow God's instructions. Number one, did you notice what God said? Don't multiply horses. Don't multiply horses. That's what he said in Deuteronomy 17. Don't multiply to yourself Horses doesn't seem like a big deal, but Solomon did multiply horses. Back in the book of 1 Kings chapter 4, I'll read to you verse 26, which simply gives us this summation. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Now, I am... No expert in higher math. But I'm pretty sure you can't get to 40,000 without some multiplication, right? Solomon did exactly what God said not 
to do. But you and I read that and say, what's the big deal? I mean, it's just horses. Why does it matter? What is the spiritual significance for you and I? Well, uh, the spiritual significance is, is that horses are a picture of power. And even more so, it is the pride of your power. Horses were premier animals in the ancient Near East as a means of transportation and warfare, and they were symbols of royalty. So every king would have been trying to multiply horses. Why? So that he could have more transportation for trade, so that he could have uh, more defense uh, for war or more attack, and so that he could display to everyone else just how big a king he is. You amplify that by the addition of chariots, And this becomes the most prized commodity in the elaborate system of gift giving in the royal exchange of the late Bronze Age. What does that mean? It means that this was the biggest gift one king could give to another king in Solomon's day. I mean, if you had horses and chariots to give away, then you were a big deal. It's what my kids call a flex. You know what a flex is? I'll give you a demonstration. Flex is a kid comes down, high school basketball, goes up for a layup. He makes it in. The defender is, uh, is guarding him. He falls down, and the kid comes down and goes, Ugh! They can get called a foul. I mean, they can get a technical on that sort. And the, the sad thing is, is that all you see is elbows and knees. There's no muscles, you know, <laughs> popping out anywhere. But it is this pride in your power and your ability. That's what Solomon is doing. That's why God said, don't do that. Why? Because God is the power in Israel. God is the pride of the king. God is the one that the king is to be looking to, saying, it is not me, it is not my chariots, it is not our horses, it is God Almighty who has secured us and brought us to this place. But when the king multiplies horses, you know what he stops doing? He stops looking at God's providential hand, and he starts looking at his own powerful arm, and he says, we have achieved this, and we're achieving more, and we're expanding our kingdom because I have a horse-filled army. And so Solomon just blatantly ignored when God said, don't multiply horses. Solomon builds 40,000 stalls and fills them up with horses. That's pretty plain, isn't it? I mean, we're not making a leap to judge Solomon on this one. Number two, the second thing God said to kings in Deuteronomy 17 was, don't get friendly with Egypt. Don't get friendly with Egypt. Don't go back to Egypt. Uh, Don't go trade horses with Egypt. Don't let the people go back to Egypt. Don't go back that way. And yet, Solomon did. Again, in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says this, Solomon made affinity with the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David. And so we find that Solomon made a trade agreement with Egypt and he married Pharaoh's daughter. When we were reading about all of Solomon's wives, it says he had 700 wives or 700 princesses and 300 concubines. What's the difference? Well, the difference is that the ones that were considered princesses came from some sort of royal lineage 
And the uh, ones that were concubines, they were wives, but they were non-royal birth. And so here is the daughter of Pharaoh. She comes from a royal lineage, so she would be a princess because she is married to Solomon. What's the spiritual significance of this, right? What, what, what's the spiritual significance of not going back to Egypt? What's the big deal with making a trade agreement with Egypt? Well, Egypt is a picture of the world. Do you remember the history of Egypt with God's people? We first find it in, uh, in Genesis chapter 12 when God calls Abraham and he says, Abraham, I, I want you to leave your homeland. I want you to come to this promised land. I'm going to make a nation out of you here. And when Abraham takes that step and he goes by faith and he gets to that land, all of a sudden there's a famine that comes into the land. And, and Abraham makes this unsanctioned journey and he goes down into Egypt he backslides on God because he doesn't trust God to provide for him in the land where God took him. He goes and provides for himself in Egypt where there is not a famine. And so the very first introduction that we have of Egypt is that it is drawing away God's people. The next mention of Egypt, uh, Abraham recovers, comes back to the promised land with his nephew Lot. And when Lot decides to part ways with Abraham, he chooses to go towards Sodom and Gomorrah because it looks like Egypt. And so he had gotten a taste for the things of the world down there in Egypt. And this is what he sets his sights on. As we trace the, the narrative of Egypt throughout Scripture, we find uh, that it is an enticing land at first and that Jacob and his family moved down there for provision. But then we find that they get taken into bondage. And at some point they go from being guests to being prisoners and being slaves until we come all the way to the point of Moses when Moses has to liberate them from Egypt. And so I'm telling you, Egypt in the Bible is a picture of the world. And that's why God says to his king, don't, don't go make nice with Egypt. Don't go be friendly with the world. The spiritual application for you and I is found in James 4 when it tells us that the friendship of the world puts us at odds with God. That we cannot be friendly with the world and friendly with God because we are lining up with the enemy. It begins with enticement, but it ends with enslavement. And even though Solomon was not taken physically into enslavement, he was enslaved by the religion of Egypt in the end. Third... God says plainly to the kings, any and all kings, including Solomon, he's only the third king at this point, don't multiply wives. Don't multiply wives. And yet Solomon did. We read in our text, 1 Kings 11, 3 and 4, he had 700 princesses, 300 concubines. He has 1,000 wives. Do you know that historically there, there are some uh, uh, liberal theologians who, uh, and by liberal I don't mean who they vote for, it's how they view the text, who don't take the Bible literally, who say, you know what, that has to be hyperbole because there was never a king in history who had a harem that large. Like the largest harem that's documented outside of this was 330, I think. This is not hyperbole. This is the literal word of God. And what we are finding is that Solomon had this disobedience, this weakness that drew him away from the Lord. 
and that he went wholeheartedly after these women. What's the spiritual significance? Well, I don't have to ask the women that, I'm sure. But for the men, it is that bigamy is a picture of carnality. It is this idea of indulgence of fleshly passions and sensual desires. God designed it as Adam and Eve, one man and one woman for one life, that they leave father and mother, that they cleave to one another, that they meet all of their needs in one another. And when we see Solomon multiplying wives as God said not to, it is this indulgence of fleshly desire saying, I want more, 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 more. It is a carnivorous appetite that seeks to feed the flesh. And by the way, the flesh is the antagonist of the spirit in the life of the believer. It is that internal battle that you as a Christian face every single day when your flesh wants to pull you away from God and the spirit wants to pull you towards God. The flesh is the antagonist of the spirit. Fourth, the fourth instruction God gave to kings was don't greatly multiply silver and gold. And again, Solomon does exactly what God said not to do. In 1 Kings chapter 10, verse number 21, the Bible describes how that Solomon blatantly ignored God's instruction. And it says in 1 Kings 10, 21, and, and all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. It was nothing accounted of in the days of Solomon, for the king had at sea a navy of Tharshish with the navy of Hiram. Once in three years came the navy of Tharshish, bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks. So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. From a secular worldview, we'd say, whoa, that a boy, Solomon, you're getting it done, son. I mean, you have become the wealthiest king in the world, but he is doing exactly what God said not to do. And let me tell you something, the goals of the world and the goals of God are never aligned together. They're always contrary one to the other. What's the spiritual significance of this? Why does God not want Solomon to, to, to multiply the gold? Why does he not want them to become a richer, wealthier nation? Because it is a picture of covetousness. It is this idea of consuming greed. And it makes material gain the object to which you are most devoted. If that is your goal, then you know what? You're going to live for that. You're going to serve that. You're going to rise and fall on that. You're going to sell out for that. It is going to become your God. By the way, Colossians 3.5 says covetousness is idolatry. Idolatry is not simply having a carved idol that you bow down to. It is anything that you value more than God. It is that to which you are most devoted. Can I give you a side analogy on this? Addiction is one of the greatest idols in the world today. Because those people who are addicted literally serve that drug or that addiction. They wake up thinking about it. They spend their day trying to get it. They go to bed at night thinking about it. They will sever every relationship that they have to satisfy that addiction. If that is not an all-consuming idol, I don't know what is. And if that is the case, then we have a real idolatry problem in America. And so the 
problem with Solomon is that he has ignored what God said. Solomon did all of these things, and it eventually drew him away from the God that he once loved. But interestingly, God didn't just give a list of don'ts. God also gave a list of do's when he was speaking to kings. And Solomon not only ignored the don'ts, he neglected the do's. Two do's here. One, do handwrite a copy of the word of God. That's what he said to kings. When you sit on the throne, go get the copy or a copy of the law of Moses from the temple. At that time, it would have been just the the five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And you hand copy it for yourself. Remember, there were no copiers and there were no printers, so everything had to be handwritten in that day and time. Now, there were scribes, there were secretaries, they were called amanuenses, and there were copyists, but God didn't want kings to hire this out. God didn't say, have somebody make you a copy. God didn't say, get you a copy. God said, write you a copy. And so what God wanted every king that ever sat on the throne of Israel to do was to sit down and to hand copy his law. You know, it's a great practice with spiritual benefit. I I was introduced to this years ago when I was uh, studying discipleship and looking into discipleship models and practicing discipleship. One of the programs that I used included a Bible writing program. And so you read a few chapters of the Bible every day, and then you wrote a few verses of the Bible every day. In the years that I practiced that discipline, I hand-copied the entire New Testament. Literally, hand-copied the entire New Testament. What I learned from that is that it, it has a way of solidifying it in your mind that reading doesn't, just doesn't do. When you read it, you look at those words on the page, and then you go on to the next one. When you write it, you have to look at the word on the page, You have to think about it. You have to tell your hand to write it. You have to go back and look at it to make sure that you're spelling it correctly. I mean, there is a a more intense interaction with the Word of God than just reading it. Just maybe, maybe, maybe God knew that about our species. And that's why he at least wanted the leader of his people to hand copy his laws so that he would hide them in his heart and be a good king for his people. I once read a quote from from Dawson Trotman. He is the founder or was the founder of the Navigators. And, And he made this observation. He said, thoughts disentangle themselves when they pass through the lips and fingertips. Thoughts disentangle themselves when they pass through the lips and the fingertips. What he is simply saying is that if you and I have to teach it to somebody else or we have to write it down, it is going to have a way of clarifying it in our mind. It's going to have a way of cementing it in our heart. It's going to have a way of getting God's word into us that will change our lives. The second thing that God told kings to do was do make a lifelong habit of reading the Word of God. 
I do want you to handwrite your own copy so that you have your own personal copy of the Word of God so that you can read it and study it and make a lifelong habit of being in the Word. Why did God want his king to do that? Well, he told us there in those verses in Deuteronomy 17. I'll just summarize them for you this morning. It will cause you to see God more clearly and revere him more deeply. If I read God's word every single day, it is like taking a telescope and bringing it into focus. The more that I do that, the clearer I'm going to see God. And you know what the good news is? I've been doing this for like 25 years and it keeps getting clearer. Every time I read God's Word and I continue that habit of reading God's Word every single day, I see God more clearly and I begin to revere Him more deeply. Not only that, God said that it will cement God's Word in our heart and our mind and that it will shape the way that we think and the way that we view the world. You and I have to understand that we all have a worldview and that worldview is built by what we put into our hearts and minds. The education that we give ourselves and the information that we expose ourselves to. So whatever you're exposing yourself to is the worldview you're going to adopt. And if you don't think there's a difference in worldviews, then just, uh, just, just turn on CNN and Fox News and you'll see a representation of two different worldviews. They can report the same story in two entirely different ways. And whatever you're allowing to be the main influencer on you is going to shape your worldview. So God wanted the king to have this as his main influence. He didn't want his court of counselors. He didn't want it to be his ambassadors. He didn't want it to be foreign powers. He didn't want it to be a multiplicity of wives. He wanted it to be his word. Furthermore, he said it will help put God's instruction into practice in your daily life. You know what reading God's word every single day will do? It'll help you live God's word. It's easy to hear it on Sunday and forget it by Tuesday and go back to the old way of life. But if you are refreshing it Monday morning and Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning and Thursday morning, guess what? You're going to live it more consistently. It will keep you grounded, God told the king. It will keep you from being drawn away, turning to the right or to the left. It will keep your trajectory from falling into tragedy. He told king, uh, the king that it would extend his kingdom. And he also said that it will benefit the king's children and their future. All of this was specifically stated in scripture for kings. Solomon's story would have had an entirely different ending if he would have obeyed these, watch this, four verses. Four verses that God gave in Deuteronomy 17. If Solomon would have obeyed four verses, we'd read an entirely different story in 1 Kings 11. In fact, Solomon's son would not have had the kingdom split and lose 80% of it if Solomon had not been drawn away from God. And so I say to you, I want to leave you with this. I, I want you to take this away with you today. We need to finish well. We need to finish strong. I'm getting to that place in my life where there is as much road behind me as there is ahead of me. Maybe there is more road behind me than there is ahead of me. And for years and years, I was thinking about my start. I was thinking about how am I going to get started? How am I going to get my trajectory? How am I going to get my momentum going? And now I'm beginning to think about my finish. 
I want to finish strong for the Lord. I don't want to lose a step. I don't want to turn aside. I don't want to be a castaway after I've preached to others. We need to finish well for our own sakes. And listen, we need to finish well for our children's sakes. I, I want to leave my children a heritage of a father who faithfully followed Christ until he died. I don't want to leave a heritage of a father who followed Christ most of his life and then forsook it at the end. And so let us learn from Solomon today. Let's not be drawn away in the last leg of our race. Would you bow with me? As you bow your heads, close your eyes for just a moment. Can I ask you, are you on track to finish well? Are you on track to finish well? Are you running at the pace that you want to run at? Or do you need to get back in the race? Do you need to pick up the pace? Do you need to dig a little deeper? Do you need to pick up some things that you've laid aside along the way so that you can hear a well done, my good and faithful servant, when you reach the finish line? Hey, friends, today's the day. We can't go back and start over, but we can start today and change how we finish. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the ominous warning that comes from the life of Solomon. I pray that it would have the weight on our lives that it ought to have, that it would impress us to the point where we would realize that how we finish this life, everything is riding on that. That there is a day of a reckoning, there is a day of accountability, there is a day of judgment when we stand before you. And if we have not finished well, if we've not finished strong, that will not be a happy day for us. Father, I pray and ask that we would not only do this for ourselves, but we would do it for our children and for our grandchildren. That we would leave behind a legacy of faithfulness to them. Father, I pray that you'd have your will and your way in the lives of your people today. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.